Let's begin our time with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that as we open your word, we would see the message of it and understand it, that hearing and seeing that we would act in obedience in following what you have laid down for us in your word. We pray that by your spirit, we would have insight, that we would have understanding, and we would have the impulse to follow in your ways. We pray for your blessing, knowing that without it, we are hopeless and we will not progress at all. So we beg of you to give us the help that we need. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this is our third out of five weeks in a series on church membership, and we've been looking specifically at what membership means to us here at MCC. We recognize that the New Testament provides a lot of flexibility in how a church might be run, but it's necessary that we establish and explain our understanding of church so that we can have the the right expectations or the same expectations and have the same mind about what we're doing. This isn't only helpful because it sets up common expectations so that we're all expecting the same things of each other, but it's also necessary in order to clarify for the entire body the line between what is optional or insignificant and what is important and required. Many churches have what they call a church covenant, and when you become a member, you enter into a covenant with the rest of the body. That can be a helpful way to understand membership, I think, but we've chosen a different approach, probably mainly because of James 5.12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. We're very reluctant to require you to take an oath or to swear in order to become a member. So we've organized our understanding of membership into six affirmations, six statements that you can either say yes to or no to. And if you want to be a member, we would expect that you would say yes to all of them. So your yes can be yes. But this is our common understanding. I thought it would be helpful to look at those six affirmations. And so I've printed on the back of your insert those six affirmations. I've phrased them in the first person singular. I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that each of you individually can read those and say yes or no. We could also phrase them as questions. Will you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And we could also say them if we wanted to as a body corporately. We have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is how we've done it. So take out your uh, insert if you haven't already. Look at the back side and let's look at our six affirmations of membership. Membership affirmations. In joining myself to Martinsdale Community Church, I affirm that, one, I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Two, I have been baptized after coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Three, I have read, substantively agree with, and will not oppose the MCC articles of faith. Four, I will gather with regularly and use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. 
Five, I will participate in the biblical process of lovingly dealing with sin in the body at MCC. And six, I am willing to follow the shepherding of the leaders at MCC. Those are our six affirmations of membership. I think fairly simple and straightforward, and we hope helpful in explaining what we believe the scripture tells us about membership. In the first message of our series, Pastor Jeremy looked at the two initial points, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and baptism subsequent to that faith. And then last week, we saw the importance of our common confession as spelled out in our articles of faith. This morning, we're going to look at the fourth affirmation. I will gather with regularly and use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. Next week, we'll look at the last two points of membership, and then, Lord willing, the week after that, Pastor Jeremy will give us a message summarizing everything we've covered in the series. So that's our plan. Now let's turn our attention to the fourth affirmation. I will gather with regularly and use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. I think this is really our broadest point. You could pretty accurately summarize this affirmation is, I commit to live the Christian life at MCC. That's really what we're getting at. But we've broken it down into a few parts. And this morning, for the purposes of our message, I want to break it down into four commitments that are seen in this affirmation. And the first is a commitment to gather. A commitment to gather. We are the church that meets at Martinsdale, as Pastor Jeremy often says. This building is not the church. We are the church. And you can't be part of a church without being present. In our modern age, with all the new technologies we have that allow for remote meetings and things like that, there still is no substitute for gathering together. Even the word together not coincidentally, sounds an awful lot like to gather. This is what it means to be together, that we're with each other. Now, we recognize exceptions. We know that there are those who physically are unable to join with us. That doesn't mean that we separate from them. And we recognize that sometimes there are vacations which take you out of town, business trips, or perhaps illnesses that keep you away from the gathering. But we are to be a congregation, a body. And so in order to do that, we have to gather together. We have to come together. We can broadly speak of two types of gatherings. And the first is our corporate Sunday gathering. Our corporate gathering is weekly, and it should be seen as preeminent, the preeminent gathering. Our corporate gathering is weekly and preeminent. When the Lord created the heavens and the earth, he didn't do it randomly. He did it establishing a pattern, and that pattern was a weekly pattern. For six days, he worked, and then he rested. That weekly pattern was strictly prescribed under Moses so that you had to obey the Sabbath. It was required. It was a weekly rest. But that same pattern is continued in the New Testament in our weekly gatherings. We gather weekly together. We read in Acts 20, verse 7, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them or instructed them. And that was done on the first day of the week, which we call Sunday. Also in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Now, it could be that everyone does that individually in homes, but it would be a rather random command to set aside something on the first day of the week if that wasn't when they were gathered together. So we understand that the, the first day of the week, Sunday, also called the Lord's Day, is the day that we gather, and we do that every week. We know there are exceptions, but that is the pattern, and it should be one of the highest priorities that we have it's important to note also that this corporate gathering is preeminent. It's, it is more important than any other gathering. Turn over to Matthew chapter 18, and I want to look at something you might not have expected. This is a familiar passage because it deals with the issue of discipline or dealing with sin in the life of believers. I'm going to look at something really unrelated to that. Because someone will say, Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 tells us that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And the argument would then go, see, if two or three are gathered in my name, that constitutes the church because Jesus promises to be with them. But look back at verse 15. When your brother sins, go and show him his sin between you and him alone. And then in verse 16, if he won't listen to you, take one or two others along with you. And then in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, that is you and one or two others, which would be a total of two or three, if he won't listen to them, tell it to the church, which makes the church clearly distinct from the gathering of two or three that happened in verse 16. I know that might seem silly or simple, but that's pretty significant. No, even though the Lord Jesus is among you and you gather with your friend at the coffee shop and you're praying together, he is among you. That is not the church. The church is the gathering of the body. It is preeminent in our gatherings. We have a, a lot of different gatherings. After this service, we'll have ABFs where we break up into smaller groups and Sunday schools. And during the week, we have things like Awana. We have Bible studies. We have men's groups and women's groups. We have Sunday night small groups. All of those gatherings are important and significant, but they can never replace our corporate gathering. So our corporate gathering is weekly and it should be seen as preeminent. Second, smaller gatherings are day by day and subordinate. Smaller gatherings are day by day and subordinate. Following our gathering this morning, we'll go out into ABFs. Because they're not the corporate gathering, does that mean that they're not important? No, they're very significant. In fact, listen to Hebrews 3.13 but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So when are we to exhort one another? Every week? 
every day. So it's assumed that we will be gathering day by day. We will have times when we're interacting with each other, around each other, speaking to each other, and encouraging and exhorting one another at those times. That's critical to the life of the body. Now, for some of us with busy schedules or heavy commitments, we don't get to see each other more than once a week. But as often as it happens, if it's every day, twice a week, once a week, whatever it is, as often as we're together, we're to exhort one another as long as it's called today. So you wake up, and if it's called today, do it. That's what God has called us to do. Our fellowship together isn't limited to once a week. It's day by day. But that once a week is viewed as the minimum. Our smaller gatherings are wonderful and important, but they can't replace the corporate gathering of the church. So in our fourth affirmation of membership, we are committed to gathering together. We have a commitment to gather I will gather with regularly and use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. And I just want to challenge you that you consider whether or not our weekly gatherings are the priority that they should be. I can't answer that question for you. I don't know your schedules. I don't know your commitments. But as you're planning week after week and year after year, do you give our Sunday morning gatherings the, the priority that they deserve? They're very, very significant. We can't give up on them lest there be found in us a hard heart, as Hebrews 3 warns us of. Second in our affirmation is a commitment to serve. A commitment to serve. I will use my gifts to serve and edify the body at MCC. This is not an upper limit that you'll serve only at MCC. We have no intention to restrict where you serve, but it is a commitment that you do serve at MCC. We don't mean that every member is going to have a title or an official role. In fact, most don't. But we do expect that you will use your gifts to bless and build up the body here. Now, there are a ton of variations in this, a wide variety of how this will happen, what it will look like, but there aren't any legitimate exceptions. Think about that. There are no legitimate exceptions. Every member of this body ought to be serving the body. Can you think of an exception? Maybe you think of someone who's in the hospital. Maybe you think of someone who cannot leave their house. They're, they're ill. Perhaps they're quarantined. They have a sickness and they'd get everyone else sick if they didn't gather. Does that mean they can do nothing to serve the body? Oh, no. Oh, no. You, you know people like that. And what a blessing it is when they give you a call and they say, I wanted to see how you were doing. I, I can't make it to church physically, but I want you to know I'm praying for you or I want to know how you're doing, or I want to encourage you with this word that I got as I read my Bible this morning. Those are legitimate acts of service to the body. So whatever your situation, whatever your gifts are, every one of us is expected to serve, and that's our commitment to one another. Go ahead and open to Romans chapter 12 and put your finger in it. And then also open up to 1 Corinthians 12. 
We're going to bounce back and forth between these a few times. We'll save time by keeping your finger in them. We're committed to serve first because every member is gifted. Every member is gifted. I still hear turning, so I'll give you a minute. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, they're right next to each other. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Real simple, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, and each one of us has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So every member has received a gift from the Lord, and that gift is for the benefit of the body. Some may have great and impressive gifts, gifts that we all look at and stand in awe I can't believe that person's able to do that. But others may have small gifts, gifts that are barely even visible. You might think, oh, they're not as important. No, on the contrary, Paul explains that every one of them is significant. We all have a gift given to us by God. And the question is not, how great is your gift? The question is, are you being faithful to use that gift for the benefit and the building up of the body of Christ? Second, every member is unique. Every member is gifted and every member is unique. 1 Corinthians twelve fourteen, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then in verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? Oh, there would be a problem with that, wouldn't there? <laughs> you would not hear very well if the whole body were an eye. But there's an eye, and there's an ear, and there's a foot, and there's a hand, and every one of them is different. It's distinct, and it's significant. Romans 12, 6, again, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So whatever your gift is, whether it be the impressive prophecy or the lowly service or acts of mercy, which might not even be noticeable, whatever it is that God has given you, use that to bless the body as he gives you opportunity. 
We do not expect every member to be the same. On the contrary, we expect that every one of us will be unique and will have significant variation. As varied as the eye is from the foot. Just think about that. Is your eye pretty important? Yeah, it's pretty important. How about your foot? Is that pretty important? It's pretty hard to deal without feet, isn't it? Now compare the eye and the foot. <laughs> I think they have DNA in common. Other than that, I don't know what they have in common. They're totally different, but they serve very significant purposes. And that's each one of you, whether you be an eye or a foot, you serve a very unique and special purpose. Use it for the benefit of the body. Third, we're committed to serve because every member is needed. Every member is needed. Again, in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is perhaps one of the issues that is most often overlooked. You know you have skills, you have gifts, you have ability, you have possessions. You know that and you think they are for me, right? And that's how the world uses what God has given them to build themselves up, to make much of themselves. But Paul makes it clear that's not how it is in the body. The reason that God made you the way he did and gave you the gifts that you have is to benefit the rest of the body, not yourself. There is no function in the body that is for itself alone. Think about it. What body part exists just for itself? There isn't one. The whole point of having a hand is that you might benefit the rest of the body. And aren't hands wonderful when you have an itch? <laughs> you, you have something in your eye. What do you do? You use your arm, your hand. It's not for the purpose of the hand. It's for the purpose of the whole body. And that's why God has given you the gifts that he has to bless the body. And of course, I can't spell out for each one of you what that's going to look like. But you can before God say, Lord, how can I use what I have? Whether it be small or great. How can I use it to benefit the body? Who in this body might need my help? Who in this body could I serve or bless? And if you do that faithfully, you are fulfilling this commitment and affirmation. Also, I want to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 22 and following. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What a remarkable observation. The parts of the body that you might think, yeah, I could do without that. No problem. The ones that you don't think about, they're indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. So there is a balance. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's what we're after, that we would have a care for one another. 
verse 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You think if I'm hurting, if I'm going through something, it's just me. And that can't be true. When you slam your finger in the car door, you hurt. (laughs) Yes, your finger hurts, but what do you notice about every other part of your body? What's it all of a sudden concerned with? (laughs) Your finger. And when you have something in your eye, do you just go about your business? And the foot says, I'm not going to stop walking. I don't care about the eye. What does your whole body do when something is in your eye? (laughs) Stop what it's doing and focuses on getting that out of your eye. Because when one of us suffers, we all suffer together. And when one of us is honored, we all rejoice together. It goes both ways. When one of us is honored and blessed, all of us share in that. And when one of us suffers, all of us share in that as well. So every member is needed. We need one another, and every one of us, every one of you, is needed by this body. So we're committed to serve. A third commitment included in this affirmation is a commitment to give. A commitment to give. This is a little more indirect, but I'm, I'm quite confident it's there. Whatever gifts you have, you use to serve and build up the body. And one of the things that God gives us, and the New Testament mentions specifically, is the Uh, gift of money or material blessings doesn't have to be cash or coins as members we're committed to giving a portion of God's blessing to the Lord we give it back to him now I'll be brief in covering this but I want to look at four characteristics of our giving that I think are really helpful in understanding what's going on first we give because it's fitting that we share It's fitting or appropriate. It makes sense that you would share. Galatians 6.6 says, Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. If you're taught the word, then you share with the one who teaches. If you receive spiritual blessing from the teaching of God's word, then it makes sense, it's fitting, that the teacher would receive your physical blessing, material blessing. Turn to 1 Corinthians 9, and Paul explains this even more clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, remarkable passage. Some of you here are, are farmers. You have cattle. Paul talks about oxen. <laughs> so does the Old Testament. Interesting little uh, tangent. First Corinthians 9. Consider this. Who, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who pays his own way to go into the military? No one. Who pays for you if you're serving in the military? The military does. Duh. Right? Why? You don't pay in order to serve someone else. If someone wants you to serve, they pay you. Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? No, 
And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. Does not the law say the same? For it is written, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So here we've got an ox and it's working hard treading out the grain. And if you're greedy, you don't care about anyone but yourself, what might you consider doing with that oxen who every once in a while leans down and eats some of the grain? You know what? We'll come away with a lot more grain if we just put a muzzle on that thing. So while the ox is working, you might be tempted to muzzle the ox to keep it from eating your nice grain. And maybe you justify yourself by saying, I'll give him some nice straw later on. In the law, it is written explicitly that you cannot do that. Do not muzzle the ox while it's threshing. Well, why? At least part of it is, if the ox is giving you this benefit, then let the ox share in the benefit you're receiving. How crooked would it be if you didn't? But is God concerned about oxen? Continuing in verse 9, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does God have that in his law primarily because he's concerned with the oxen? No. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? The reason that there's a verse in the Bible about the oxen is not for the oxen's sake ultimately, but for our sake. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. So while there are among us those who work and labor in the ministry, it is just fitting that they receive blessing from the ministry. It's just fitting. It makes sense. You even recognize this in clubs or associations that you might be a part of. Of course, if somebody is serving in that, they should get a benefit from it. Of course, when the ox is threshing it should or treading, it should be able to eat some of the grain. So we give simply because it's fitting. Now, that's true, but it's not enough. There's more to giving than just that, but that is true. The second characteristic of our giving is that we give according to God's blessing. We give according to God's blessing. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. You're already in 1 Corinthians. Just flip over to chapter 16. And verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints. So we're talking about a collection. This is unquestionably money. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. As he prospers, so that there would be no collecting when I come. Now, Paul's argument's bigger than this, but what I'm looking at here is as he prospers. As each one of us prospers, we give according to God's blessing. So there may be times in our lives where we have very little and we give very little. And there may be times where we have very much and we give very much. There's not a prescription or a law regarding that. We don't give according to what just what we want, but we give according to the proportion that God has blessed us. 
it, it, it doesn't make sense when you have a bunch of kids over and you're going to give some candy to them. You hand 10 pieces of candy to the one kid and say, you share that. And so the kid just hands one piece of candy to everyone else and keeps five for himself. Why doesn't that make sense? What's he concerned with? He doesn't care about the others. But if I give you, if I give one of the kids 10 pieces of candy and he distributes according to what he has, now what's he saying? You all are just as important as I am. I share according to what I have. And if I gave him 100 pieces of candy, I would not expect one piece of candy for each kid and he keeps the rest. It's proportional. So I've got a whole bunch. Let me share what I have. It's proportional. It corresponds to God's blessing. Flip over to 2 Corinthians, just a couple pages over, verse or chapter 8. So it's as he may prosper, we give as we prosper. There's no censure on those who haven't yet prospered and therefore are unable to give, at least financially. Maybe they can give something else. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So this eliminates the comparison between ourselves. We do not look at one another and say, well, I'm going to give more than he, he does. We don't compare ourselves with ourselves. Because what am I judged by? According to what I have, not according to what I do not have, which is part of what you have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. So when the Lord has given you a time of abundance, you share that with those who do not. And there is an expectation, a legitimate expectation, that if in the future I'm the one who's in want, that other people God has given an abundance to share with me so that we depend upon one another and there is a fairness. We give as God blesses us. There may be times of plenty, times of little. There's not a law about quantity, but from whatever you have, contribute from that. Third, we give from our hearts freely and cheerfully. We give from our hearts freely and cheerfully. 2 Corinthians 8, just one chapter before, verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord. Why did they give beyond their means? Because they wanted to. They wanted to. And so our giving is free. It's free. We do it freely. We don't do it under compulsion. We're not forced to do it. We give freely and cheerfully. Look down at, at chapter 9, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. There's no exacting. It's a willing gift. The point is this. 
whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's how God wants us to give, not reluctantly, not being exacted, but freely and cheerfully. Fourth, we give to receive something greater. This is a little bit of an oxymoron, but I think it's very important that we wrap our heads around it. We give in order to receive something greater than money. Does that make anyone uncomfortable? (laughs) We give to get. Ooh, now are you uncomfortable? We give in order to get something greater. Consider the logic in Luke 12. Flip over there. Luke chapter 12. You've read this, you know this verse, but just consider the logic of it. Luke 12, verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Give give your money away. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, we've all read that, right? Just do the math. I'm going to sell everything I have and give it away. Why? In order to get treasure in heaven. The reason that I'm willing to give my material things away is because I believe in a city that cannot be seen. I believe that there is a heaven in which God will give according to what has happened on this earth. And so in a very real sense, I give in order to get something greater than money from God. Don't go the prosperity route. If you give money to God, you'll get even richer. Well, if that's the case, if that's what you really want, guess what you worship? You worship money. But this kind of treasure that Christ is talking about isn't just money. What is it? It's treasure in heaven. We're talking about a heavenly gift. And so we give in order to receive something greater from the Lord. Now, I'm going to expand on that a little bit in our fourth commitment. So let's jump down there now. And this, I don't, I don't know if any of you can guess what this blank is. Any guesses? Probably not. It's a little out of left field, but I hope it makes sense by the end. Our fourth commitment is a commitment to reward. A commitment to reward. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Whenever we are talking about the issue of service, the issue of giving, it's critical that we understand the motive and we understand how that motive fits in with our duty. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, 
it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I have to believe two things in order to draw near to God. If I'm going to draw near to God, I must believe, one, he exists. That's pretty obvious. Second one, not so obvious. I also have to believe that he will reward those who seek him. I cannot seek after God. I cannot draw near to him unless I believe he's going to reward me for seeking him. That's remarkable. And that's not how we think at all. How many times have we said something like this? Why do I need to do it? Because it's the right thing to do. Why do I need to go to church? Because that's what God tells us to do. And it's all one-sided. It's duty. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. Now, there's some truth in that, especially uh, uh, as you're training your children. Listen, right? Just listen. I don't care if you understand or not. Just do it. But as we mature, we also realize the, the motive and the reasoning behind it. And what God says is that if we're going to truly draw near to him, we have to believe that he will reward us for seeking him. Huh. Remarkable. So we must believe in God's reward. We must believe in God's reward. Now, look at Acts chapter 17. And in regard to service, so if we're going to draw near to God, we have to believe he's going to reward us. How does that apply to service and to giving? Acts chapter 17, in Paul's speaking to total pagans, they've got all these idols and temples and they're the uh, Baha'i faith. They, they all roads lead to the same place. And look at what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We dare not come to God and seek to serve his body or give to him because we think he needs something from us. If that's the God that you serve, you're greater than he is. The God that we serve made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And there is nothing that any one of us has that is a blessing that did not come from him. Therefore, when we give it back, are we dense to think that he needs it? He gave it to us. He doesn't need it. He created it. And he can create it again. He does not need anything from us. We, we cannot serve thinking that he needs us. We cannot give thinking, oh, he needs us. No, he doesn't. He does not need our money. He does not give our, need our service in any way. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Does that mean he's not served by human hands? 
Oh no, he's served by human hands, just not as though he needed anything. He welcomes us to join him in his work freely, not because he needs us, but because he loves us and he wants to bless us. We serve, this is point C, we serve because God has served us. We serve because God has served us. You know this word, even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served and give his life as a ransom. We serve, why? Because Christ Jesus came down and served us. So that if we then go out and serve, it is not because we're the heroes, it's because he showed us how to do it. He gave to us an example so that when we go and serve others and they say thank you, it's fitting, it's right that we say, praise God, he showed me how to do it. I learned from my father how I might serve because Christ Jesus himself came to be served. Now who gets the glory? God gets the glory. Christ gets the glory. Because I'm not just doing this out of duty. I'm doing it because I love to do it. Because my Savior did the same for me. And we also give because God has given to us. Everything that we have, just like we read in Acts uh, 17, God made everything and has given to man everything that he has. So when we give, it's not, well, I give because I earned this money. Did you? Where did you get the, the power to earn money? Where did you get the job that provided the money? Where did you get the training to do the job that provided the money? Where did you get the hands that you use to fulfill your job? You with me? Every one of those came from God. So that when we have a penny, where did it come from? It came from the Lord. It came from God. And if we have an abundance of wealth, is it because we're better and smarter? Well, if, you, if that's your, your mentality, guess what? At the end of the day, who you're worshiping. You're worshiping your great self. It won't, it won't get you far. But if we recognize that everything we have came from the Lord, then when we give, it's not because we're better than everyone else. It's because God gave to us. Finally, we are seeking the ultimate blessing of God himself. If for a moment you thought I meant that the reward was something material, if you thought that we give to receive something greater and that greater thing is more money, or if you thought that our commitment to reward was material reward, no. Look at Philippians 3 in closing. Philippians chapter 3. And listen to what Paul says. There's one thing that we are pursuing. There is one ultimate reward that we are after. And it is not money. Chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What is it that I count everything loss for? More of the things I count as loss? No, I count everything I own as loss in order that I may have Christ, that I might gain him. He is the reward ultimately that we're seeking. I'm going to call the worship team up and close in a word of prayer. We'll sing our last song together. Lord God, what a blessing it is to be a part of your local body. We know that there are other local bodies throughout this world. We thank you for the one that you have put us into, and we're grateful to you for all that you've blessed us with here at MCC. I pray, Lord, that each one of us would give freely from our hearts, not because you need anything, but because you have given to us. And I pray that each one of us would serve faithfully with what you have given so that the gift you have given to us might be used faithfully and for the blessing of others. And I ask, Lord, that we would truly commit to the gathering of the saints each week, week by week, and that that gathering would be a time where we grow together as one and we grow into the likeness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Please stand.